Sorry, it's me again. Back for a second week running. Um, it's great to see you, and uh, we are continuing with uh, our mini-series. It's a two-part mini-series called The King is on His Throne. Paul has completely stolen my line already this morning, my opening line, which is that, as, as we said last week, we might notice that monarchs, and I've added in here, and prime ministers might change, but we do have a king who is seated on the throne. We have a king who's on the throne. And so I'm not going to completely recap last week, but very brief summary. Um, We looked at a number of scriptures, a number of passages in the Bible. Um, This one from Isaiah 6 says, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then it goes into this description of the the, the angels and the angelic and heavenly beings around him. And then in verse 3, they were calling to one another, and they're singing this song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord. You see, despite everything that's going on in the world, the king is on the throne. We can be encouraged, we can be reassured that he is in control. And as I said last week, being on the throne is more than just the physical act of sitting on some special chair. The Bible tells us that God's throne is a place of power and authority, of sovereignty and majesty, of honor and praise. The Bible tells us that God's throne is a place of um, holiness and purity, where no sin can come near. And that it's a place of perfect justice where all who come before him will get a fair hearing and will also get what we deserve. And that's what the Bible says God's throne is. And you would think that all of that makes God's throne unapproachable and impossible for most of us to get close to. But God's throne is also, as we said last week, a throne of grace. Where, as we are encouraged in the book of Hebrews, all who belong to Jesus are invited to approach God's throne because despite our sin and shame, his death on the cross dealt with our sin. That's what we've just been celebrating and remembering as we've taken communion. You see, God is not some tyrant, headmaster, control freak, as many people seem to think. God is a loving, heavenly father. He's a father who has the resources of the universe at his fingertips He's not distant, he's approachable, and he longs for us to come. We've just been singing, you came running, Lord, you came running. Boldly, we want to come. And if that's last week's talk, and if you missed that, you can catch up on YouTube. Um, But today, I want to build on that and look at what it means for each of us in our daily lives when we say that God is on the throne, that the king is on the throne. And so I want to look at Psalm 22, just the first five verses. Excuse me, let's um, kick off here. It says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. I'm not going right into this psalm because I've done that already this year. Back in uh, April, for those of you who've got long memories, just before Easter, we ran a series called Foretelling Easter. And we looked at this psalm in detail because it's the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross when he's dying. It was actually written 700 years before the cross, written by David as a lament. And yet it's strikingly descriptive of what Jesus actually went through. Now, Psalms of Lament, as you've heard me say before, um, have a certain pattern, a certain form that they take. And they're very, um, very real. 
with their emotional language. They're not afraid to describe suffering and hardship. But Psalms of Lament are also balanced because they always start in that place and then turn from despair to hope and restate faith and trust in God. And that's what we see going on here. Just even in the first five verses of Psalm 22, the writer almost immediately turns and says, despite feeling forsaken, actually, here's a powerful declaration of trust in God. And Jesus, who would have learned these psalms as a boy, on the cross, as he suffers the torture of death and crucifixion, he's reaching for words that he would have known all his life. And he's basically saying, yes, I feel forsaken. Yes, I feel abandoned. Yes, I feel rejected. Yes, I'm lost in pain. And I'm desperate in anguish. And that's very real. And yet, Jesus says, you are God and you are enthroned. And you are in control, and I can choose to trust you. And isn't that a great example for all of us? We didn't talk about, we talked about lots of examples of this last week, but we didn't talk about Jesus' example specifically. And yet here it is. He's suffering this horrendous and tortuous death. The sins of the world are on his shoulders. And what does he do? He says, do you know what? Despite everything, God is still on the throne. The king is still on the throne. And even this week, I didn't didn't know what would happen in the news this week would happen, but even this week, with our nation in turmoil, an economic crisis and political chaos, and the complete absence of leadership and integrity and wisdom, that's just my opinion, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And that's just the out there stuff, never mind the in here stuff. But the truth is God's still on the throne because we serve a higher authority. Let's look at this verse, verse 3, which I've highlighted there. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Do you know, from this one verse, we get two separate popular phrases that I've heard been hearing around church for years and years. We've sung them, we've prayed them, we've quoted them. And one of them is God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Have you heard anybody say that? Okay. And another one is this, God inhabits the praises of his people. Have you heard anyone say that? And on the surface of it, they seem like two slightly different things. Actually, they both come from the same verse in the Bible, just translated differently. Okay, so you can see there, um, if you look at the New Living Translation, you get, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of your people. If you look at the Old King James Version, you get, um, thou art holy, thou inhabitest, I can't even say it, inhabitest the praises of Israel. Okay, so enthroned upon inhabits, what's that about? The original word for enthroned here, the Greek word is yoshab, and it means to dwell, to remain, to sit, to abide, to inhabit, just to be. So in a way, both are right. And we can say, you sit as king, which is what another translation I Wrote, says, I think both of the translations of this verse are reasonable. We can say that God is present and that he is in control well, when and while we praise him. In fact, all the time, and therefore we praise him. And that doesn't just happen in the heavens. I said this last week as well. I just want to restate this. It doesn't mean that it's us who enthrone him, that it's us and our actions that put him on the throne. That's not what it's saying. We can get a bit confused about that sometimes. It's saying that he is on the throne and we are praising him. 
He is in his space and his people praise him. And where is that? Where is God's throne? For me, when I started digging into this, that's the question I started asking first. Because I felt like God spoke to me. Actually, I felt like God spoke to me and said, what I want you to do, I'm sorry, I'm doing the thing I'm not supposed to do. I'm wandering around. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, hi, I'm here, sorry. Um, for, the, for um, I just came back, you know, I've been off for a, for a while, and I just came back last week, and Stephen, who's um, watching the video and sorting all that out, he said to me, gosh, I'd forgotten how much you move around. <laughs> so, try, here's me trying very hard to stay still. Um, what was I saying? Where is God's throne? I felt like God said, to me anyway, what I want you to do is build me a throne. I thought, well, what does that mean? I really had to dig into that because I came to the conclusion I don't build, I don't build God's throne. He is enthroned. He is enthroned in heaven. Actually, I think that in some ways you can say that, and I'll get to that later. So what I want to do is I want to dig into this question of where is God's throne? Where is God present? Where is he enthroned? And to answer that question, we need to sort of look at the theme of the temple or temple in the Bible. Now, by the temple, I mean the place where God dwells, the place where God communes or meets with his people. Some people refer to the temple as the house of the Lord, but actually... The first temple wasn't a house at all, it was a garden. And it was the Garden of Eden. It's a special place, it's set apart, it's where God walked with Adam. It's the first place on earth where the creator chooses to be with his created people. He's in there actively looking for relationship with his people, hoping that that partnership will become a blessing for them and for the rest of the world around them. Now we know from the story it didn't go that well, but God didn't give up. Because later in the Old Testament, we read about God's people in the wilderness. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're traveling around the wilderness. And again, God is making provision for a place where he can dwell with his people. Even though they don't have a permanent base to call home, even though they're wandering and on the move, everywhere they went, God told them to take a makeshift worship center called the tabernacle. This is, I don't think that's the original one. But um, it, it probably looks something like that. It's made with tents, as you can see. It's a worship space for the priests to, um, to, to, to do all the, the rituals of worshipping God. And it's built around um, in the tent where the Ark of the Covenant would be, which was their holy box containing stone tablets of the law. And so wherever they travelled to, this whole tabernacle arrangement was set up and the Ark of the Covenant was put there and in the centre of the camp and everybody camped around and praise was offered continually to God and this is the place where God dwelt with his people. And then even later on, after God has installed his people in the city of Jerusalem, this arrangement was made more permanent with the magnificent temple, sometimes known as Solomon's Temple, which became the centre of life and worship for the whole nation. This is a, again, I don't think it's the original. In fact, I looked, I checked my research this week, and there are, they're, they're, nobody believes any part of the original Solomon's Temple is still around. But this is what people believe it looked like, looking at the... Looking at the um, Looking at the descriptions in the Bible, okay? Um, you can see it's, it's got a cutaway, so you can see what it's like on the inside. Um, this one here, this is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Anyone ever been there? Um, yeah, this is, this is part of the replacement temple, the second temple that was built when this one got knocked down, sometime pre-Jesus. can't remember my dates. I'm not a historian. So if you've been to the Wailing Wall, 
that is part of the second temple. But this is what it was, would have looked like, or something like this. And God has installed his people in Jerusalem, and he says, look, I want a permanent home, the house of God. This is where I'm going to dwell. I want you to build a magnificent temple. And in there is the Holy of Holies. I talked about this last week, which is the place that God dwells with his people. His presence comes and dwells in the Holy of Holies. In fact, there's an amazing account of the day that uh, Solomon, um, when they'd finished building this thing when he prayed. And I'll just I'll, I'll put the words up here. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when the Israelites saw the fire coming down and they saw the glory of the Lord, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to God, saying, He is good and His love endures forever. You see, the Psalms and the prophets are full of descriptions of God's throne up in heaven, high above the earth, clearly signifying His all powerful rule and reign over the whole world. And yet, at the same time, At the same time as him sitting in majesty and splendor and surrounded by heavenly beings, at the same time, completely coexisting with that image and with that idea, Israel very much understood that God was with them on earth among the praises of his people. The Holy of Holies in the temple, that inner sanctum, was literally thought of as being heaven on earth. It was heaven. It was a piece of heaven on earth. In their minds, that's exactly what it was. Like the Garden of Eden before, this was the place where God would dwell, where his presence was manifest. And by the way, you know, if you look into this, because I, I did a course on this and you have to dig in. If you look at the temple, just going back a bit, all of the fancy ornaments and all the decorations, there's, there's like endless descriptions in the Bible of, how, of God saying, this is how I want you to make it and this is what I want it to be. And when you look at it, they're basically recreating the garden. All of the imagery in the temple is garden imagery. Much of it is garden imagery. And they're recreating this space, the original temple. And in their minds, God was omnipresent. He was both in heaven ruling over the whole world and at the same time in his dwelling place on earth, be that the garden, the tabernacle, or the temple. And that's described in Psalm 11, where it says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Meaning God is in control, he's on the throne, and he's worthy of our praise. If God's on the throne, it must have an impact both in the heavens and on the earth. We'll come back to that. Because then you move on to the New Testament, and there's Jesus. And Jesus makes a very bold prophetic claim in John chapter 2. Jesus says, he's talking to the, 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 um, the chief priest, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they said, well, it's taken 46 years to build. How are you going to do that? And Jesus says, ah, but I'm not talking about that temple. The temple I'm talking about is my body. And so Jesus makes this bold claim. He says, look, up until now, God has dwelt in a building on earth, a special building, but a building. Now, God is not confined to a building or even to one holy space. Actually, I, Jesus, I am the temple. My body is the place where God dwells on earth. And through me, ordinary people can meet with God in a way that just wasn't there before. You see, back in the old days, it was only the priests who could go into the Holy of Holies. 
But here's Jesus saying, no, 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 God isn't just present there, he's present here. He's present in my body, here in me. And the evidence of that is that everywhere Jesus went, we saw these extraordinary supernatural miracles. People got healed. People got delivered. People got saved. He's demonstrating God's love and his power, and people are choosing to follow him, and their lives are being transformed. And then, as I mentioned last week, on the point of Jesus' death on the cross, the Jerusalem temple curtains ripped open, signifying that access is now open to all. God is accessible and open to all. Things have changed. And after Jesus has gone, Paul, who writes the letters uh, to the early church, then develops this idea even further and starts to describe Jesus' followers, that's the church, as the what? What's the weird metaphor that Paul uses for the church? Come on, thank you, yeah. Just seeing if anybody's awake this morning. The body. Paul says we're his body. Now, in one way, that's a weird metaphor But actually, it all makes sense. Jesus' body was where God dwelt. Jesus' body was the temple. Jesus' body now is his church. We are the temple. You are the temple. Don't you know, Paul says, that you yourselves are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in your midst. So we've moved from God dwelling in the Holy of Holies to God being present in Jesus to God being present in his followers, that's us, the church. And just to complete that journey, because I'm a little bit of a completist, the temple metaphor goes all the way to the end of the Bible and to Revelation, where John describes this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. So God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. He sits in heaven. He's in ultimate control of the whole world. And God dwells with his people, which means that by his spirit, he's here in our church, in every other place where his people are gathering to worship him today. And he dwells in the hearts of each of us, everyone who chooses to follow him, which means that we have a choice to make. Because it's true to say that God is on the throne across the whole world. I couldn't really argue with that. Ultimately, all powers and authorities will have to bow the knee to him. The question remains, is he on the throne here? Is he on the throne here in my heart? And when we sing that old song, Jesus, we enthrone you, I think that's what the writers of that song are trying to get at. Not theologically, oh, Jesus, we've put you on the throne. Jesus, I want you to be on the throne in my heart. That's what I think they're trying to say in that song. At least that's what I try and say when I'm singing that song. So two questions. Question one, is he on the throne of my life? You see, I can preach to you all morning that God is on the throne somewhere out there, that he's in control, and that we have to believe it. But the question remains, is he here? God is unique among all other gods in that he is both, I'm going to use a fancy word now, two fancy words, transcendent and imminent. Transcendent meaning out there, over everything, above it all, huge, and imminent meaning up close and personal, and here, right here. You know, most religions worship a God who is known to be one of those things, but the Bible tells us that our God is both of those things. He's both above everything and also very, very close to us individually. Somebody I know once wrote a song about that. It goes, our God is a great big God, and he holds us in his hands. So we know that he's on the throne up there. How much do we know that 
How much do we want him on the throne in here? And how much are we able to recognize his rule and reign and his authority in our lives? And how much do we live as if that is a reality? Because the people around us, could, sorry, could the people that we know, the people we work with, the people we meet with, could they tell that God is on the throne of our lives? Could they tell that that's a choice we've made? Could they tell that it's our passion to follow and serve him? What about the decisions we make and the people we value and the things that we do? Is he the king over our decisions or our plans? Is he the king over our commitments or our dreams? Is he the king over our relationships or our careers? Is he in control over our health? Is he the king of our sexuality or our family or our finance? If we're going to say that he's the king, then do we give him full permission to look right into our lives? Well, what a silly question he can see anyway. But is he permitted to comment? Is he at liberty to speak? See, I can watch what my kids are doing, but they don't always want to hear what I've got to say about what they're doing. And those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about. Do we give him the authority to ask us the hard questions? Do we allow him to come close and challenge us? Do we trust him with our future? Do we believe that he actually has a really good plan? See, it seems to me that if God's on the throne, then he might as well be on the throne completely. Oh yeah, this, this is just a, um, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. That's a diagram I found online, just about who is, uh, who is actually on the throne of my life. Is it me or is it him? And it seems to me that we can, that, that probably all or nothing is the way to go. You know, we could, we could actually say, he's not my king. I don't recognize his authority in my life. And he would allow us to do that because he's given us the gift of free will. I just don't understand why people would say that they're following Jesus and would go along to church if, they, if we're actually not prepared to give him full authority over our lives. For me, that lacks integrity, saying one thing. It's like having your cake and eating it, you know? We've tried to drill into our kids, look, whatever else you do or don't decide, be someone of integrity. Be someone who means what they say. And uh, there's a verse in Revelation, isn't there? where God seems to be saying to uh, one particular group of people, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you were one or the other, but I can't stand the fact that you're lukewarm. Those are pretty damning words, possibly even worse than, when, than walking away completely. You know, we have this thing, in our, you know, I've been married to Joe for 27 years. Sometimes she asks me to do something for her, and I make an assessment, and I say either, yes, I can do that, or no, I can't do that. And mostly, I like to try and say yes if I can. Yes, I'd love to do that for you. Yes, I've got time to do that for you. Certainly, I can sort that out for you. Occasionally, I have to say, no, I'm, I'm not able to do that for you. I'm really sorry. And she's okay with that. But what she's really not, um, she's not even in the room, is she? I don't think she's in the room. What she's, what, she's, what she's really not okay with is me saying, yes, I will do that, and then not delivering. If there's anything guaranteed to wind Joe up, and get her cross. And I've learned this from my 27 years of marriage. It's saying yes and agreeing to do something, but then not doing it. I think there's enough said about that. Um, <clears throat> I had a decision to make myself. I had finished university. I think probably my upbringing 
I was in church as, um, as, a, as a kid. My family were believers. I grew up in a church. I went to uni and spent about three years kind of vaguely drifting around the church. I didn't leave it completely. I didn't walk out on God at all. I didn't get committed that much, and I didn't find anywhere to really connect into. So I got to the end of three years, and I was left umming and ahhing and wondering what to do with my life and trying to work out if the people who weren't in church were having more fun than me. And I realized, I had this moment, I was 21, and I realized I've actually got to make a decision. I've been brought up with this thing, but I'm not really living my whole life for God. I'm not really giving it everything. Do I want to? Or do I not want to? Simple question. Is this real or is it not real? And the problem was I knew too much to know that it wasn't real. I knew God was real. And I'm like, well, okay, so I know he's real. So now I've got to make a decision about what I'm going to do about that. Either you can have my whole life, God, or I'll just ditch the whole thing and go. I just realized that I couldn't pretend, I couldn't sort of do the half and half thing. Just, it just wasn't working. It wasn't working. And so, I don't know, I wonder if there are any of us who, who need to consider this this morning. So I had two things I wanted to ask, two questions. One of them was that question. Is he on the throne of my life? The second question in response to all this is, how am I carrying his authority? You see, the Bible tells us very clearly that we have been made in the image of God. So if he is royal then so are we. Two Peter says, no, one Peter, sorry, two, says, you're a chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The Bible invites us to recognize that when we choose to follow Jesus, not only have we been accepted and forgiven and welcomed at the throne of grace, like I talked about last week. But as well as all that, as if that wasn't enough, we've been adopted as sons and daughters into his royal family. With all the resources available to us, and with an invitation, maybe even some responsibility, to share in the family business. Alan Scott says this, he said, kings have royal identity and they have responsibility to supply the destiny of a whole nation. They rule and they reign and they demonstrate their authority in a way that releases humanity. I'm looking for leadership in this country, by the way, that releases humanity and supplies destiny. I think that's what rulers, kings, leaders, authorities, leading politicians, I think that's what they're supposed to do. I noticed when everyone was talking about um, King Charles, still can't get used to calling him King Charles, I still think of him as Prince Charles, but anyway. I noticed that, um, I mean, a number of things have happened in his life, and by the way, I'm not up here to tell you, you know, I agree with 100% of everything he's done in his life, but I did notice that one of the things that's happened to him is that he's grown in favor in a nation because of the things that he has stood up for and campaigned for over the past 30 years. I mean, he is somebody who was talking about the environment before most people were. And he is also somebody who has invested in the training and skills and employment of a whole, of generations of young people through the Prince's Trust. And I just thought, I'm not saying he's perfect, but I just thought that's a really good example of how kings should be supplying destiny 
and releasing humanity. And I noticed as well that his son, uh, William, um, what, what, what do the family of kings and queens do? Will they help in the family business? Or most of them do. Um, William speaks on behalf of mental health charities and homeless charities. I picked up something in the news a few months ago about him um, just very quietly getting on with going down and helping with the um, big issue salesman and just bringing a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of publicity to that. So that's just a, a little example. But you see, if that's what kings are supposed to do, then if we're chosen people, if we're a royal priesthood, then God is inviting us to share in that same family business of supplying destiny and releasing humanity. Let me read you a quote from a theologian called N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He says this. I don't have it up there, I'm sorry. He says, you are called to a throne. The wise rule of humans over creation, the earth, is what being made in God's image is partly all about. The image does not refer principally to some aspect of human nature or character, which is especially like God. As many writers have shown, it points to the belief that just as ancient rulers might place statues of themselves in far-flung cities to remind subject peoples who was ruling them, so God has placed his own image, human being, into this world so that the world can see who the ruler is. And not just see, but experience. Precisely because God is the God of generous, creative, overflowing love, his way of running things is to share power, to work through his image bearers, and to invite their free and glad collaboration. So that's quite wordy, isn't it? But what he's basically saying is we are God's royal representatives on earth. We get to bear his image. We get to carry and represent his vision and values. We get to carry his authority. And the phrase we've used for that in this church in the past and still continue to use is trusted rulers. We are trusted rulers. You know, some people, um, some, some leaders look for people who can be skilled, supportive servants. That's the, that's, you can build stuff if you've got enough people on your team that are skilled, supportive servants. You can get a great church going with multiple teams and, and multiple activities if, if there are enough people who are prepared to be skilled, supportive servants. But we don't want to be skilled, supportive servants. I don't believe God is inviting us to do that. He's inviting us to be trusted rulers. Trusted rulers are people who know our identity. We know who we are. We know our authority. We know what we carry. And we have clarity on our assignment. We know where we're supposed to be. I was just chatting to Chris here, so I'm going to embarrass you now. Chris used to work with us. When I first came here, I convinced him to come and work in the office with us, doing a brilliant job on our team. And then after a few years, he just said, look, I love you guys, and I love working here, but I'm really called to be out there in the, in the internet world where he does amazing things, okay, out there in the marketplace. And, um, and it was very clear that that was what God was calling him to do and has given him success there, and it's the same for all of us. You know, wherever we are called to be, God is inviting us to bring his presence, to bring his values, to bring his rule and reign to bear, whether that's in our workplace, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our school or university or college, whether it's in the school playground, which is perhaps where some of us go every morning and every afternoon, whether it's in our community or our toddler group, whether it's in our social club or our sports team, whatever we do, wherever we go, whatever we find ourselves doing, God is inviting us to carry his rule and reign, to make a difference, to bring his presence to live out and be the kingdom. 
to put him on the throne in the places where we can bring his rule and reign to bear, where we can release humanity, where we can supply destiny, where we can be bringers of hope, where we can share a message of love and come with the power of God and the authority of his kingdom. God is on the throne, as it says there, and he wants to extend his kingdom through his people in supernatural ways. We get to be involved in God's business. We get to help those who are struggling. I heard an amazing story about the food bank this week. I don't know when it happened, sometime in the last two or three weeks. Somebody came into the food bank and they, um, they came to get some clothes and some food. But the team there noticed that, that their shoes were, had a big hole in. And it was a really wet day, so their feet were soaking. They didn't come and ask for shoes. But the team were able to say, hey, would you like some new shoes? And because the team had some new shoes, like packaged up new new shoes, I'm not sure how they got them, but they got them from somewhere, they donated these things. They were able to give this person a brand new set of shoes that fitted, and they walked away with dry feet. It's a very simple story, but I just love, I just love how we are able to supply destiny and release humanity and bring the love of God to people who most other people in society are ignoring or rejecting. And we get to pray for the sick, and we get to see people changed. And we get to invite the lonely into real community and friendships. Why don't we stand?